When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Emma tragically went missing. She was in the process of selling her car because I think she was going to South Africa for a, some sort of World Deaf Congress. She put a sign on the car with her cell phone number. She was contacted by a number of people, one of whom was a man called Liam Reed. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, and this is Crimes NZ, a podcast where I talk to people about some of New Zealand's most notorious crimes. And listener discretion is advised for this episode, where I talk to Stuff senior reporter Martin Van Bainen about the 2007 murder of 20-year-old Emma Agnew. Well, Emma was uh, a community worker from a very close and loving family. She had um, three brothers and the whole family was profoundly deaf. Um, so Emma was was able to vocalise, but she didn't speak. But she was very expert in, um, in sign language, and she was a great reader. She was very good at English. And um, from, what, from all accounts, uh, you, you know, you hear about people described as beautiful, a beautiful person. Well, mm. I think she was one of those. And she um, she was intelligent, sociable, and very cheerful. Uh, a great advocate for the deaf community, and and with tremendous potential with a whole, uh, you know, her life, her, her independent life was ahead of her. Yeah, and she she was deaf, but she, um, in most respects, just tried to lead a normal life by the sounds of things. Um, she, yes, if, very much so. If she if she met someone new, she would sort of mouth the words. She couldn't. She didn't have any speech, did she? But she would sort of do what she could to make herself understood. Yes, um, she went to high school, uh, uh, a normal high school. Even though she, I think she started her primary school at, at the deaf college, uh, and uh, she, she did do some courses with uh, ordinary hearing, you know, hearing people. So she certainly didn't avoid the hearing world, and she was a bit of a bridge between um, her deaf community and the hearing community. I didn't realise, you know, until this case cropped up, that there was really quite a distinct uh, deaf community, and it was a lesson for all of us, I think. Yeah. So what happened in November 2007? Well, in 2007, November, uh, November 15... Emma tragically went missing. Uh, she was in the process of selling her car because I think she was going to South Africa for uh, some sort of World Deaf Congress, uh, which shows you know how involved she was in the deaf world. And she was was selling a little um, red Mazda Familia, and she put a sign on the car with her cell phone number. 
and uh, she was contacted by a number of people, one of whom was a man called Liam Reed, who was 35 years old at the time. And according to the Crown anyway, he and Emma went out to uh, a reserve just north of Christchurch for a drive. And then later on that day, her car was found burnt out uh, in, in Christchurch. And by then, her family had already become very concerned about her because it was the sort of family that, that was in constant contact through text and email. And um, so I'm, I, I'm not 100% certain about this, but I think the alert had already been raised by the family. Police took it very seriously, and then they found the car and then she was missing. Do we know if he knew that she was deaf, whether he tried to target her in that way? Well, he always denied that he met her to discuss the car. Um, I think he, he admitted touching the car at some stage because his fingerprint, because his palm print was found on it. But he never, he never admitted meeting, uh, meeting her, so... Uh, that was really beside the point. What went on for those 12 days? Presumably the whole of the country were interested in this case and, and people were looking for her. Yeah, it was a massive case at the time, as you can imagine. And I guess during the the following... Uh, when was it? So it was, she was, her body was found on November the 26th, so it was 11 days that uh, the police were searching for, for her. So it was a massive, massive search. Police divers were involved, helicopters were involved, big teams of police were searching. And uh, in the meantime, the, the police had uh, assembled a huge squad to start investigating. And eventually, um, they were pretty close to finding her in Spencer Park when, when a guy was um, walking his dog. And he and um, and they found his body uh, um, hidden under some scrub and undergrowth at a place called Spencer Park, which is by the beach. Um, it's north of Christchurch. It's a lovely uh, reserve um, surrounded by pine trees. And, of course, she was found, her body was found there. Not particularly well buried or hidden by the sounds of things? No. The public had already heard from Emma's father, Henry Agnew. Some people might remember that, making a public appeal. Yes, uh, that happened on the day after she went missing. So that was the 16th of November. And um, the police obviously were trying to get as much information as they could, and the family were keen to help. So Emma's father, Henry, and her brother, Toby, gave a, um, a very tearful uh, press conference in sign language, uh, which was then interpreted. And, um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people remember that. It was a fairly uh, very emotional and touching sort of uh, conference, not something that we, we were used to. No. And there was a big turnout for her funeral too. Certainly was. I suppose a crowd really of about a thousand people turned out for her funeral in an auditorium, which had to be specially sort of hired to cope with the big with the number of people that attended. Yes, yeah, so you can imagine there was an outpouring of grief and anguish over her death and the the, the loss of the potential that she presented. And it was uh, broadcast throughout the country for people who who couldn't attend uh, by Television New Zealand. Actually, they got together with the auditorium and and provided some sort of, I suppose, live stream. I'm not sure you call it a live stream, but but they provided um, coverage of the funeral for for uh, the, the the main centres 
So it was a big event. Obviously, it was covered by all, all the TV channels and, and stuff and the, news, the press. It was a celebration of her life, but also you know, a horrible event for a lot of people. When did Liam Reid uh, come on? To, when and how did he come onto police's radar? I'm not exactly sure, but in, when in those 11 days, they zeroed in on Liam Reid, but he must have been a suspect at a uh, reasonably soon because they were look, because they were certainly looking for him and he was on the run, and he wasn't arrested until November the 27th when uh, an armed some armed police um, raided a boarding house and found him and took him into custody. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly when they when they when he became the main suspect, but I think he was he was on the on the police's radar quite soon. And so they arrested him and it went to court. And how strong was the evidence they had against him? Well, I guess it depends on who you talk to. But from an objective point of view, it looked, it really did look quite strong. So I guess the main, the main evidence was DNA evidence. And that comprised of his hair, a hair of his that was found in, in Emma's car. And then we should mention that a few days before Liam Reed's arrest, there was a horrific rape and, and attempted murder of a, of, a, of a student in Dunedin. And he was also charged with attempted murder and rape in relation to the student. And in that attack, he used a rope, or the offender used a rope that was recovered and a rope was recovered from Reed and found to have the student's DNA on it. So that was another another similar type of crime. And there was um, the student's DNA was on the rope. Her DNA was uh, sorry, his DNA was found under her finger under uh, the student's fingernails. So in, in terms of Emma, there was the Reed actually made a, com- a confession to his then girlfriend uh, before he was arrested, saying that he had killed the deaf girl, he called her the deaf girl, and then also that he had attacked the student in Dunedin. And the other main bit of evidence, I think, was the, uh, the, the the cell phones, and they managed to track Emma's cell phone and Reed's cell phone, so that suggested that, well, that sort of proved that they had met, and Reed was the last person to see her. Yeah, it didn't look good. Nonetheless... He denied all the charges. What was his defence? His defence was that he was actually somewhere else at the time. He he said that he he gave evidence, which is quite unusual in a murder trial. He gave evidence himself and in a sort of fairly grandiose uh, manner talked about how he hadn't done it. He denied everything. He said he had been travelling at the time in a car and at the time he was he was filling up bags bags of drugs to sell. So that was his that was his alibi, but he couldn't produce the person who who he was with, and uh, he, essentially he was saying that he had been either been framed or the DNA evidence was wrong. Um, the police had made some mis- terrible mistakes that he was that he was innocent. So people refer to his evidence as a bit of a performance, and yeah. it was a bit of an attention seeker. So um, it wasn't wasn't that surprising. He was found guilty. Certainly found guilty, is found guilty of all charges on the 
So I think the trial was just about three or four weeks and the jury went away for about four hours, came back and he was convicted on every every um, charge. So that was the rape and, and murder of Emma and sexual attack and rape and attempted murder of um, the student in Dunedin. So there was a raft of charges and he was sentenced immediately by the judge to preventive detention, which meant that he would only be uh, released at the discretion of the authorities. And there was, uh, and then later on, there was another hearing about whether, about how many years he, he should serve before he w- would be um, considered for parole. So he was given, initially he was given a 26-year uh, non-parole sentence, and that was reduced by the Court of Appeal to 23 years non-parole. But you note that he continued to deny uh, that he was guilty and kept appealing his sentence too. He did. He, he got as far as the Supreme Court, I think. Yes, he did. And so he struggled to get legal aid and there were delays and there were problems getting a lawyer and that sort of thing. But eventually he did get to the Supreme Court, and but they threw it out. The main grounds were that his defence team had been given the evidence about the cell phone tracking and the DNA or some of the DNA evidence only a week before the trial. So they had no time to have an independent uh, expert assess it and perhaps get a case ready to balance the, the Crown evidence. So that was, I think that was the main grounds, and the Supreme Court chucked that out, saying that there was nothing to suggest the evidence wasn't strong and solid. And then, of course, he now has new lawyers, and there was another event in 2017, which we may want to talk about. Yeah, just to note, too, that he, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, that he went to court again to try and stop a TV production company from making a program about him. That's right, yes. Uh, so I think it was South Pacific Pictures had, had, had made a documentary about the case. His argument was he went to the High Court to try and stop it with an injunction, arguing that if his appeal succeeded, he may get another trial and he, he didn't want uh, a documentary to influence a potential jury. That was the argument, but it didn't, it didn't succeed. Okay. Any chance he'll be let out? He was given 23 years non-parole, so he's done about 15. So he still has another eight years to go before he's even considered for release. It's hard to say. I mean, one of the things about Liam Reid was that he showed very little remorse for his actions. He obviously denied any, any of the wrongdoing or the terrible crimes that he was accused of and found guilty of. So that's that's all going to count against him when he applies for parole. But, you know, he, he now has a team behind him. Um, his, he, in 2017, he married a woman who was at one stage his lawyer. Uh, she was then called Davina Murray. And um, she was she lost her lawyer's ticket when she was found guilty of um, trying to smuggle in a cell phone and some cigarettes to, to Liam. And eventually... Um, they they were married in 2017 in a ceremony in Parimarima prison, uh, but and she is convinced that he's innocent and is prepared to do everything she can to get him uh, a new trial, if that's if that's still feasible. People will be gobsmacked by by that, right? 
I mean, about so many different aspects of it. The idea that a that a lawyer and uh, someone in prison could fall in love in the first place, um, let alone someone who had sort of bored witness to all the evidence against him, and then that they would get married. Uh, she was found guilty of smuggling uh, a phone and cigarettes and a lighter uh, into him. I mean, that's that's incredible, isn't it? It it, it is absolutely. But uh, the human being is a strange creature, and sometimes these things happen. But uh, on any sort of rational basis, it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? And uh, but you know, we we. As Liam Reed said himself at one stage, you know, I can't be all bad, and and he was he could be quite charming and with women, even though he, he could you know in an, in a second he could turn aggressive and dangerous, but he you know he could be helpful and as I say he he, he was a smooth talker and and seemed to get on well with with, with some women, so a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of character. Yeah, a, a neighbour had quite a nice had quite nice things to say about him. Well. Well, <laughs> it was vaguely positive, at least. Yes. Look, I, I think he, he could be helpful, and, and he was a friendly sort of character when he was sane. I mean, he was also a drug addict, so that, that wouldn't have helped any sort of mental instability that he had. But, you know, I, I have had stories of him being quite helpful or offering to help neighbours and, you know, being quite friendly. He wasn't un- unintelligent, so, you know, you could argue that makes it even worse, but... Um, he, he was capable of turning it on, shall we say, from what from what I gather. Yeah. Nonetheless, by 2008, when he went to prison, he had 61 convictions, all sorts of things, from threats to assault to aggravated robbery. And sentencing reports said, did you hear this? Actually, you must have, because I'm reading your words from your uh, story on stuff. Sentencing reports said that his life's ambition was to be a serial murderer and rapist. That's right. Well, they were reports that were done before his sentencing and uh, in, in December 2008. So I don't, I don't know whether he was just playing up to the audience there. I mean, I did. it was obviously a sensational um, line to, for the judge to mention because the judge did, did say, you know, this is, this is chilling. His, 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 his um, psychological reports made chilling reading. But thinking about it afterwards, I did think Reed may have been playing up to the jury, or plus, sorry, playing up to the audience. Mm. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he was prone to make things up. His girlfriend said he reveled in the in the attention. He wanted to be a famous murderer. I don't know where, how seriously we take all that sort of stuff. Um, he told the report writer that as a child, he, he wanted to kill animals for the enjoyment of it. Uh, but he thought humans would be, would be better. So, yeah, on the one hand, it's chilling stuff. And and even if he is just sort of playing the game, it still boggles, mind boggles, doesn't it? Yeah, looking at the most recent photos of him, looks like he's got a prison job tattoo on his face. This looks like pretty rough. Yeah, well, he had he, he didn't have the he didn't have that tattoo for the trial in two thousand and eight. So that's a that's a new tattoo. Yeah, but he's he's, he's just a little fellow. Like he's not uh, he's not one of your you know six footers with um, bulging muscles. Well, he may have done a lot of weightlifting since he's been in prison. But I remember one of the descriptions of him when he first appeared in court after he was arrested, and uh, you know there was this was a 
obviously a, an event that was widely, widely covered by just about every media organisation in the country. And he turned up and courted for a very short time and uh, was on the receiving end of all sorts of um, insults and profanities and stuff like that. Anyway, one of the reports was that the police uh, woman towered over him because he was because he was so small. So he was a skinhead, and yes, tattoos were very much a part of his appearance. They went right up his neck and down his arms, and quite a feature of um, his appearance. How significant a case is this in New Zealand's legal history? In terms of the significance of the case, I think it, I think it made us more aware of the difficulties that the deaf community face, how strong that community could be. It also showed that you know, society can respond in a very positive way to these sort of things. And I remember the Agnew family were very grateful for the outpourings of support. They got something like two and a half thousand cards. And one touching little event that always struck me was that they had a lot of visitors after uh, Emma's body was, was found, or even before probably, and um, their barbecue blew up. So the local might attend gave them a new barbecue and the local farmers got together and gave them a whole lot of food and meat. So, you know, there was um, there was that aspect to it. It brought out the best in people. But on the other hand, it, it was one of those cases which shows that, you know, the terrible vulnerability of some of people. And, yeah, I mean, he was called an evil predator and it does make you wonder, doesn't it, who's out there. You've been listening to Crimes NZ, hosted by me, Jesse Mulligan. This week I was joined by Stuff senior reporter Martin Van Bainen. Martin, thanks so much for your time. An amazing team goes into producing the Crimes NZ podcast. Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis and Ayanna Piper-Helian. This episode was edited by Grant Walker and Liz Garten. Tim Watkin is executive producer of RNZ Podcasts. Crimes NZ is available on all good podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and Google. It's even on YouTube now, if that's how you'd prefer to listen. Remember to follow the series so you don't miss any new episodes. And look out for other great podcasts from RNZ, like Sci-Fi Sci-Fact, a podcast where experts discuss whether fiction's best tropes could actually come true. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.